0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Everybody always wants to write the great American novel or come up with their first billion dollar business. But really, it's all about just like you brush your teeth every day, brush your creativity every day. and have incrementally small new creative ideas and and just to practice that creativity muscle this next guest josh linkner he's built and sold a bunch of companies but now he has a new book out about how little breakthroughs lead to big breakthroughs and it's an interesting concept about creativity josh and i talk about this and many other things and i hope you enjoy the episode let me ask you a question first. How much of creativity do you think is nurture versus nature when you see like the great creative geniuses?
1: Yeah, I think it's mostly nurture. And, you know, the research sort of bears this out. Harvard actually years ago did a study asking that very question. They revealed that that, uh, human creativity is like 70% learned behavior. Uh, So I do think that certain people have a propensity, obviously, to, you know, maybe we're not going to be Mozart, but by and large, creativity is a learned skill.
0: Okay, but now let's look at Mozart's case. I mean, his his dad was a composer, so he taught him, you know, from the age of three on. His older sister was a composer and and a musician. So it could be the case that he had the training. I mean, it's a question of how much actual talent he had. I mean, probably there was a little bit, but as Malcolm Gladwell pointed out, he had his 10,000 hours in by the time he was 10 years old.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, I always say that creativity is much more like your weight than your height you know, you're not going to control your height by yourself but but your your weight you can you can affect the outcome and i think creativity is exactly the same thing.
0: Okay, so this book, Big Little Breakthroughs: How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results by Josh Linkner, really good practical advice about creativity. Uh, I like the idea of creativity not being this huge lightning strike that hits you but is done through small innovations. I I preach the same thing. And I, and I really like, and I also like a lot of the chapters you have when you give practical advice on how to get more creative, like you have this one chapter reach for weird. And then you have uh, all sorts of exercises that I really enjoyed, Like, um, uh, you know, brainstorming as if you're someone else. It's, it's funny cause I've done so many podcasts with creative people and a lot of the ideas and techniques you, you have in here are shared in different ways by different guests I've had who have been creatives.
1: Well, what I tried to do is I tried to really sort of demystify the creative process and say, okay, as normal human beings, we don't have to be the next Elon Musk, but what are the mindsets that we need? What are the habits that we need to embrace? What are the tactics that we should do? And really tried to create like sort of a systematic approach for everyday people to become everyday innovators. And have you done this? I think so. I'm I'm pretty proud of the work, honestly. Like, you know, it's I have four kids and you write another book, it sort of feels like you launched another kid. Uh, but this one, no, I spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews with people all over the globe, and I, I am proud of the work.
0: So you've run several companies before. They've had successful exits. How did you encourage creativity among your employees, for instance? Did you see results of teaching them some of these methods?
1: Yeah, so the 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 book is not only based on my external research, but some of it is based on personal experience. And so, in fact, the reason I started writing books about human creativity is because that's what I lived. Uh, you know i started my career as a jazz guitarist i still play regularly today and uh, when i was how old old
0: were you when you were a jazz guitarist
1: i started at age eight
0: wow so what inspired you specifically on jazz guitar
1: well at age eight i first started learning piano then i switched to guitar pretty quickly and like every other kid i wanted to play stairway to heaven so i could impress the girls and i had a guitar teacher he's like look if you want to play really good learn jazz. If you learn jazz, you can play any other form of music, no problem. So I actually originally did it because of the challenge of it. But then I fell in love with the art form. It's this sort of dangerous, mysterious, make it up as you go thing. And back to your first question, that, that's why I started injecting creativity into work. And when I looked back, we had, we had a number of successful companies and exits. I think it was largely based because we were able to cultivate human creativity organizationally, not just in one sp- small part of the business.
0: And how, how would you do that?
1: Well, back to the sort of mindsets, rituals, and habits. You know, we we did a lot of things where we created this this cauldron really for for creativity. You know, one thing that we did is we we had an, uh, a fake competitor. So in, in my business, I started this company in ninety nine called ePrize. We designed, built, and ran. Oh, I remember ePrize. Yeah, so I was the founder and CEO. And anyway, what happened was we were pretty far ahead in the digital promotion space. And I realized that often success is achieved in the face of adversity. And since we didn't have a gigantic evil nemesis competitor, I made one up. So I had this thing, I called it the Slither Corporation. It was our fake nemesis, the evil bad, bad guys. And we rolled it out to the company as like, look, there's a company out there that's bigger than us and faster than us and more profitable and better investors. And this became this this constant reminder to, to keep creative. And so, for example, instead of saying like, hey, we need to shorten our production time, we would say things like this. Our spies at Slither just got a report that they shaved two days out of their production time. How do you think they did it? And everyone knew it was a fake made-up competitor, but it really became part of our culture. And it encouraged everybody not only to drive urgency, but to push forward with creativity.
0: I I love that idea. That's a good technique. So get back to this book. Like, Describe what you mean when you say little breakthroughs lead to big breakthroughs.
1: Yeah, so to me, innovation is fairly misunderstood. You know, most often we think of it that it has to be a billion-dollar idea to count and that we should only take moonshots. And these are these wild, wildly risky, almost irresponsible-type bets where you sort of bet your company and career and hope for the best. And most of us are not in a position to do that. And furthermore, we often think that only certain people can be creative, like at some exclusive club for, for billionaires wearing hoodies. And I tried to demystify that and make this like innovation for the rest of us. And so a big little breakthrough is the opposite. It's cultivating small daily acts of creativity. Think of them as micro innovations. And I think it's a more pragmatic approach because first of all, those little things add up to big things. It's way more accessible. It's lower risk. And we're building critical skills in the meantime. I said in the book that, you know, da Vinci's, famous work of art, the Mona Lisa, that wasn't his first painting. I mean, first he had to learn to paint. He had to paint every day and he had to paint bad stuff. Over time, his better work emerged. And so I think this notion of small little daily creative bets is a much more, again, pragmatic approach for normal people to become more creative.
0: What's your favorite example?
1: One of my all-time favorite examples is a guy who I interviewed. uh, He's in London. His name is Trewin Resterick. And you've probably never heard of him. I certainly didn't before I interviewed him. Well, until I read the book, I have I
0: hadn't heard of him.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty cool guy, right? If you read the book. So so the, the notion was that um he was kind of an environmentalist. He always loved, you know, the, the the environment. And he learned that in central London, cigarette butt litter is the biggest problem they were facing a- environmentally. It was, you know, it looks terrible. It, it it's bad for children or animals that ingest them. They spend millions of pounds every year to try to clean up the mess. No success. So the cool thing I love is that Trowan is not a billionaire. He doesn't wear fancy suits. He's like a normal dude. But he invented something called a ballot bin. And the ballot bin is this. James, let's say you and I exited a pub. We had some fish and chips and a pint. And and we look off in the distance, there's this big yellow metal box with a glass front. And at the top of the box, there's a two-part question, like, which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburgers? And underneath each of those questions, there's a little receptacle encouraging smokers to vote with their butts. And so basically what happens is people toss their cigarette butts in. It's like a bar chart to see which of these two parts question is in the lead. And it's low tech and it wasn't expensive to do. And it didn't require 40 PhDs, but it worked. In fact, when ballot bins are installed, they reduce cigarette litter by 80%. And he's gone on to start a company. They're in 27 countries around the world. So the reason I bring that up, that's one of my favorites, is that Uh, Besides that, it's fun. It's fresh. You know, we already know that Netflix is innovative. How about something new? But, but more importantly, it makes it feel like it's within the grasp of all of us. Like you or me could have come up with that idea. We didn't have to be some genius brainiac. And that's really how innovation is. It's sort of like the great equalizer. And I love showcasing stories like that of normal people doing extraordinary things.
0: And, and I like, what I like about that story also is that he didn't start it off. He started off because he wanted to do it. This gave him pleasure to solve a big problem. It wasn't like, how do I make a billion dollars? Oh, here's a problem. I, I, I really, I, I don't think people enjoy it as much when they start a business or a challenge or go for a goal when it's th- they, when the reasons are kind of man made as, or external as opposed to internal. Like I always find the best projects for me are not ones where, Oh, I'm that age. I better write a book or I better start doing this because it's that time. Uh, it's when I, when I solve a problem for myself or I do something that gives me pleasure. And then, and I also get pleasure seeing other people react to it. And that's, I feel real, real, real creativity sets in because it comes out of your love and, and, and pleasure.
1: Yeah. Hey, you're doing things because you want to, not because you ought to. And it's funny, you know, I thought often about this, uh, James, like the, the word play and work, you know, so we were kids, we went out to play. I go do music, I play music. But then you contrast with that with the word work, which is almost like trade your soul for money. And it's almost like if you have any enjoyment whatsoever, you better stop that because, you know, this is a, you know gut it out. And, and why can't we substitute those words? I've often thought, like, why not have a play force instead of a workforce? Instead yeah. of working through a problem, why not play through a problem? I mean, play simply implies that you are learning and growing and you're having intrinsic value in the process. And yeah, you're right. When you're playing, you become more innovative, for sure.
0: So, so like you have some research showing that, you know, children basically lose their creativity as they get older. So now we're all adults and yes, we've lost that playful sense we had when we were five years old in the sandbox or for me, 17 years old in the sandbox. And what do you do? How do you kind of relearn creativity or, or, or is that literally a, a, a right reserve for children. Like children are in some ways more creative. Their brains are working faster as they're as they're growing. Are, are adults too late? Have we learned too many bad habits?
1: Yeah, the good news is, is no, it's not too late. And, and here's the thing. It's not like you're learning something new. You know, if I asked you to go learn Mandarin or something, that would be like a big process and a lot of sacrifice and hard work. For you adults, know. we can reconnect with with our creative roots because that's who we are. I would say that you're, we're hardwired as human beings to be creative. That's actually our natural state. And yeah, we may need to dust off the cobwebs. We may need to recalibrate the way we think about primarily taking risks, but we can get creative pretty quickly. And I've seen this time and time again. You give people the right setting and the right technique, you can you can watch the creativity fly. In fact, James, said in the book, I cover a couple examples where just the simplest adjustments to environment can unleash a huge return in, in terms of creative output. There's one quick study that, uh, in, in in Italy, a university conducted, they took a bunch of group of people, very similar in demographics and such, divided them in two, as most surveys do, and they showed each group a video, short video, and then asked them to take a standardized creativity test. One group was shown a boring video, like sheeps grazing in the meadow. The other one was shown a fun and inspiring video, an awe-inspiring video. And then they gave the exact same creativity test. They, they were short videos. The awe-inspired group, it turned out, outperformed their boring counterparts by like 80%. And it wasn't so, that they learned a new technique. It's that they reconnected with part of who they are.
0: So it's interesting because I think, you know, there are all these, there's these neurons called mirror neurons. So if I've never climbed a ladder, but I watched someone climbing a ladder, probably just then I learned to climb a ladder, even though I had never done it. My mirror, mirror neurons kicked in and my brain doesn't really differentiate between this guy going up the ladder and me going up the ladder. And I've noticed, like, let's say I have to give a talk if before the talk, if I'm stressed, I won't do as well. If I watch a video, let's say a stand-up comedian, who's, it's a, standup comedy is a form of giving a talk, but it's very funny, it's humorous, there's a lot of energy, it's a little, a lot of, different than the, a boring talk. If I watch a bunch of standup comedy videos, I'll give a much better talk. It'll be, you know, I'll get people laughing, I'll have more energy. I wonder if part of that that study is is related to mirror neurons as opposed to like, juicing up creativity. It's almost like you get a 15 minute injection of creativity when you watch a creative video. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, the point is that they didn't learn a new skill in that time period, but they had something inside them that was, they were able to bring, bring, bring forward. Um, you know, it's funny. I actually do a creativity ritual every day. And one part of that literally I spend one minute a day on this one part is I spend one minute guzzling inputs in software engineering they always say if you want to change the outputs you got to first change the inputs. So what I do I take literally 1 minute every morning and I sort of guzzle creativity of others. I might watch a YouTube video of a band I like, I might start a painting or read a poem out loud, but exactly like what you're talking about watching comedians, just sort of bathing in the creative output of others is a good way to kind of plus up our own ability to to exhibit creativity. I agree
0: like if everybody kind of watched videos that inspire them, whatever that category is, you kind of have to search for what categories inspire you. If everybody did that before a big meeting or a job interview or a talk or a congressional vote, God forbid. Uh, I think that again, it does feel to me, you know, after about an hour, let's say it completely wears off. I've got to watch a video again, (laughs) but, or if I'm playing, let's say I'm playing Scrabble and I watch professionals playing Scrabble for the next, if I then immediately start playing Scrabble, I'll play better. Cause I'll something, something about watching the creative process in front of you. I think that's why Twitch is so popular. You know, Twitch is this service, which kids or adults like me watch people play games. And I, at first I wonder, why would anybody want to watch somebody play a game? Just play the game yourself. But it's actually really captivating watching like people who are really great at a game in their process.
1: Yeah. You know, so, you know, on the neural science front of it. I also did a bunch of neuroscience research. And last few years, even the, the, the research has leapt forward. Uh, one of the cases that I covered in the book is where they took jazz musicians like me, although probably better than me and put them in an fMRI machine and watch the way their brains work. Like what, what's happening when people are getting creative. And the old, uh, focus was that you know, like right brain, left brain, the, the right brain is the creative party brain. And the left brain is the boring suit and tie brain. But it's actually a much more integrated network. And we've learned so much about through through neuroscience. Fascinating to me, anyway, in, in in the jazz musician, as you might imagine, when they were improvising in the fMRI machine, instead of just playing written music, a certain part of their brain lit up like a Christmas tree, the part that's responsible for original thought. But more interesting, though, is that another part almost totally shut down. That's the part that is your filter, your inhibitions, like why you don't say something stupid at a cocktail party. Well, I usually do, but why most people don't. And so in other words, we jazz musicians trained a single part of our brain to to, to fire strong and another one to almost stop working altogether to give us the creative freedom to take those responsible risks musically without a whole bunch of fear.
0: So it's kind of like a, a flow experience.
1: It's kind of like a flow experience. And, and, you know, we know the term neuroplasticity. I tried to coin a new term in the book called inoplasticity, which is basically that, simply put, your, your brain actually can become more creative physically as as you continue to work on these skills. I,
0: I really believe that because the brain, the brain rewards making connections. So if you can say, hmm, building a, a, a rocket ship sh- shouldn't be as hard as it used to be. So you call a physic, physicist, you... you you think of how helicopters lift off. You think of how planes lift off and you make some connections. So, oh, now we're gonna make a plane that doesn't disappear into space. We can actually uh, land it on an airstrip, just like a regular plane. This one just happens to go into space. So it's like making connections between two different different objects or the or the right brothers. I keep sticking with aviation, but they uh, compared, they were trying to make a plane. Everybody was failing. Samuel Langley was in DC given $2 million. And he tried to make a plane that wouldn't wobble. And the Wright brothers saw that in their, they owned a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio. They saw that by wobbling the bicycle, that's how kids learn. They, they wobble at first. And so the plane should wobble. And so that's how they figured it out. And, and so making these connections, I think the brain likes that. And I think that's a good way to get creative is practicing making those connections.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, one of the techniques that I love, I call it the borrowed idea, where if you're trying to solve a problem or seize an opportunity, you essentially ask, where else? where else in the world is something analogous happening? And, and you might borrow an idea instead of from your industry, because often we get sort of an echo chamber in our own industries, what's happening in nature or sports or entertainment or, or the arts? And, and you look for patterns that you can borrow and bring back. And that's exactly what the Wright brothers did. Speaking real quickly of aviation. So in the back half of the book, as you saw, James, I, I covered the eight core mindsets or obsessions, as I call them, of everyday innovators. And these are, these are sort of like these mindsets that are most of them counterintuitive, the opposite of what we've been taught, but they're pretty portable. They, they can help us become more innovative. So one of them that I covered is this, this notion of start before you're ready, which is that you know most of us, we wait. We, we wait until we have a directive or permission or a perfect game plan. But the risk there is that we, we wait too long or either give up our leader or, or never start at all. So these two brothers in rural Minnesota on their parents' farm had this idea. They love the Wright brothers. And they're like, hey, what if we started an aviation company for amateur pilots and invented the safest airplanes in the world, safer than driving your minivan to the Walmart? But they didn't know what they were doing. Like they, they didn't have a, a technology. They didn't have a thing yet. They just said, let's start. So in their parents' barn, they started this company, Cirrus Aviation, and it took them seven years before they invented something, which is a full airframe parachute. So when, God forbid, the, the, the plane goes down, it doesn't just protect a person. It protects the whole plane. They since went on to come up with this technology. In addition to the plane or the air, the parachute, which is on every plane they make, there's a single button you can push on the dashboard of one of their planes. And if a pilot, God forbid, is incapacitated, the plane will land itself. And so these guys, again, they started before they were ready. That new technology didn't even come out for 20 years after they started the company. But if they waited until they they had everything perfect, they likely would have never started at all.
0: Yeah. You know, you see so many stories like that and I've, I've, Talked about this on this podcast before, but like Richard Branson is an example of someone who started before he was ready. He wanted to start an airline. He's twenty seven years old. Didn't know anything about airlines. Simply called Boeing, and my listeners have heard the story before. But he borrowed an airplane from Boeing. He convinced uh, Gatwick Airport to give him a landing strip, and J JF- and I think it was JFK to give him a landing strip. And boom, he had an airline. He didn't know any- he still didn't know anything about airlines. I guess he had to hire people to manage it, but. I think that that is a, a common technique among a lot of peak performers. You know, here's a question. You mentioned before that part of the brain lights up uh, when a jazz musician is, is thinking of improvising. Can we, can, it, can the order be reversed? Can I light up the brain, that part of the brain, maybe stimulate it in some way and then be, then go on stage and be uh, creative?
1: Yeah, uh, there's there's no question about it. I mean, just like anything about any muscle, and so you can you can build muscle if you exercise it regularly, or if you don't, it, it atrophies. And I think your creative capacity is is very much like that. You know, one of the other little rituals that I do every day. Uh, it's a one-minute ritual. Another one-minute ritual is I look at an unrelated problem. So I might look, open up the, the news and I might look at a problem, um, COVID, racial injustice. It could be a giant problem. If I, by the way, said, hey, let's solve that all at once with the perfect idea, you and I would be scratching our head for a decade. But I don't do that. I say, okay, it's it's not related to my current work, but... If I had to come up with a bunch of ideas that were little teeny improvements that might make a small difference, not a big difference in this problem, what might those be? So think of this as like jumping jacks for your creativity because I give myself like a daily little challenge, something unrelated to my profession. It just kind of keeps the juices flowing. And so that's one way to kind of get that brain lit up in advance before you proverbially take the stage.
0: Uh, I like that technique. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there was some, I outlined or I bookmarked some techniques I liked. I like to also, um, the world's first. You want to describe that exercise? That, that's a great one.
1: Thank you. You know, it's funny, when most of us come up with ideas, what do we do? We brainstorm. And I learned that brainstorming was invented in 1958. And how can that still be the primary technique that we use? Like, a lot has changed since 1958. I'm sorry. And brainstorming is, to me, wildly ineffective. And it's it's mired in fear. And we, we share our safe ideas and hold our, our crazy ones back. So I created this toolkit of like 13 better techniques for brainstorming. One of them, as you said, is called as the world's first. And so it's like brainstorming, but you can only share an idea. It's got a little rule to it. You can only share ideas that begin with the world's first. In other words, if you're in a normal brainstorm session, you might hold your crazy ideas back and share only your safe ones because you're responsible for them and you're going to be judged by them. But if you put this little condition in there that you have to say, start with the world's first, it almost gives you an excuse. It gives you permission to, to go for much wilder, bigger ideas, uh, because you're not going to be held like responsible for them or their execution. You were just playing along with the world's first.
0: Yeah. So, so, I mean, you could think of, there's a lot of great companies out there that they don't seem like the first, but they in fact are. So I I was talking to Peter Thiel on this Facebook and you know, I said, "Well, how was how was Facebook unique?" Because he was saying Facebook. He was saying, "You want to you always want to start a monopoly. You want to start something that's completely unique." And I'm like, "Before Facebook, there was MySpace, there was uh, you know Friendster, there was Tribe.net, there was uh, GeoCities." And he said, "No, no, no. Facebook was the world. He literally used the word. It was the world's first social network where you had confirmed identity, and that was a big enough difference." to you know make billions of people sign up for Facebook or Google wasn't the first ed- f- wasn't the first search engine but it was the first search engine that used this kind of ranking algorithm similar to how academic papers in science are ranked like how many papers refer to how many important papers refer to your paper determines how important your paper is and he they apply that same algorithm to to search what what other examples have you seen where where people use this to to create
1: yeah, well, sometimes it's in bigger areas, like inventing, you know, the Google algorithm. But I kind of like it sometimes in the smaller areas. One of the one of the um, principles I cover in the book is called "Don't Forget the Dinner Mint," and the notion is basically that competence is no longer a competitive advantage. Like just being good at something or having good quality or price, that's just the the table stakes. That that's not a competitive advantage. And so this dinner mint strategy is saying, okay, before I build a product, have an internal meeting, ship an email, whatever, can I plus it up with five percent or less creative? flourish in order to drive a better outcome so here's a quick like a real world example of what you asked for there's this uh hotel in orlando florida it's like a moderately low to moderately placed hotel called is the it Magic- called disney world that's what's that is it called Disney World? It is, in fact, not. That would be the high expensive one. This is called the Magic Castle, not affiliated with Disney World. Of course, they, <laughs> they kind of stole the angle of the name. But anyway, this, by every other measure, this hotel is exactly like its competitors. Same location, same price, same beds, whatever. Everything's almost identical, except one thing. They have the world's first popsicle hotline. So when you're at their pool, you walk up and there's like this, this mounted bright red bat phone. It doesn't even have a dial on it. You pick it up and all you hear on the other end is, what flavor? And you say, uh, grape. And, and then someone shows up in a couple minutes with a silver platter and white gloves, presents you with a free grape popsicle. So when you look at their overall cost structure, their, their real estate costs, their labor costs, their marketing, their insurance, this little Popsicle hotline is negligible. Yet that's the one thing that stands out. The world's first. And and they have like 10X the number of Yelp reviews. When other hotels are empty, this one's always full.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I think that's really important for marketing to be able to say why you're different from everybody else. Because I think, and again, I I I've talked about this a little on the podcast before, but I think people can't tell, I can't tell if, if companies or people are the top in the world, but it's not a field that I'm an expert in. I can't really tell the difference between the best in the world and number 100 in the world. Like to me, there's no difference. And there's arguments that in, in tennis, for instance, the difference between the number one player and the number 100 player is more psychological than actual athletic skill. So you definitely can't tell the difference if they're just playing, you know, a regular game. But I think though, if if someone's the only, like you see some tennis stars start getting endorsement deals, even if they're not number one, because maybe they did something outlandish and it made them a, a big hero and, or a sex symbol or whatever. And, uh, they start getting endorsements. So it's, it's like better to be the only than the better.
1: Yeah, I think so. And you know, if the pressure is on us that we have to come up with some gigantic change-the-universe thing, it's just, you know, it's, you know, like the scales of justice. Well, if you say, okay, I have to come up with something so big and crazy that's going to, by definition, have a bunch of risk, or I can stand still and do nothing, the risk-reward ratio is off, and most of us gravitate to, like, do nothing. And I don't think yeah. that we have to necessarily think about it. I have to be the, the best in the universe at something. I think it's more about, you know, saying, okay, can I try something in a in a, in a a controlled manner to de-risk trying something new? And then also really examine with a bright flashlight, what's the real risk of doing nothing? And I think when you do that, the, the, the equation changes a little bit. I saw, James, that you've written about the 10,000 experiment uh, rule, which I just love. And, and the notion to me is the way you de-risk trying something new, the way you de-risk creativity is not by these you know, bite your teeth, hold your breath, bet the company on it, but rather by dr- running lots of experiments. And to me, the cheaper and faster, the better. And so the more low fidelity experiments and crude experiments that we run, it's just a simple way to de-risk trying something new. And again, it doesn't have to change the universe to be creative. There's no minimum threshold of a billion dollars under which innovation doesn't count. Those little little baby innovations really do add up to big things.
0: but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. Tell the Lady Gaga story about how she basically created herself, her brand, her music, everything.
1: So Lady Gaga is, you know, one of the people that I, I covered in the book because I you, know, you look at someone like that and they just appear otherworldly. Like they're just born so talented and perfect. And and she, like most of us, had to work at it. I mean, she she practiced on and on and on. She sacrificed. She didn't go out with her friends. Even a, a recent performance she did for a, a big, like a word show, she worked with a vocal coach every day for six months before yeah. that performance. And so when she got up there, it, it looked like it was effortless. But truthfully, she did the reps. Like she she, she built her mastery not only on her inherent talent, clearly there, there's some, but, but more importantly, by, by doing the work. And, and if we want to become, you know, you look at that people who are wonderful on Broadway or in music or, or in sports. They, they make it look so easy. It's not because they were born that way. It's because they trained to make it look so easy. And the same is exactly true with our inventive thinking and creative problem solving. Each of us can become like the lady Gaga of our own craft. If we take the time and do the reps,
0: why do you think people, uh, assume that creativity is like some bolt of inspiration and in the, and they're creative. It's just, they need that inspiration instead of again, putting in, putting in the reps
1: it's weird, isn't it? I mean, you were mentioning tennis and you wouldn't look at the best tennis player in the world. Like I bet they were born playing tennis like that. Like, of course not. That'd be crazy. But, but creativity is, is one of these weird things that, that it feels like it's mythical. You know, like one of a thousand of us get a lightning bolt of inspiration and the rest of us are mindless and have to suffer. And, And the notion of, of, of building and managing it like you would any other skill or any other resource for that matter is bizarre, but it's true. That's the beauty of it. is 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 It's true. It can be developed and cultivated and and deployed and managed. And and when we do, I mean, the reason I wrote the book, James, is that not to be creative for the sake of it, like not to run down the hall and draw on the walls with purple crayons. The reason is, could we cultivate this for competitive advantage to drive the outcomes that we care about the most? And that could be a business or a career outcome. It could be a health or family outcome. It could be a community outcome. But if you think about that, we're all looking for an edge. We're all looking to sort of get to the next level. And whatever we care about, I think that creativity is an underutilized asset that can be high leveraged and quickly accessed to drive better outcomes.
0: So let's let's look at another one of your exercises. I like this uh, role storming. And I like this in particular because I remember... So Tony rock is a comedian. He's Chris rock's brother. And he was telling me, you know, he writes every day. He tries to write jokes every day, but if he's feeling stuck, he'll pretend he's someone else and write a set, a a comedy set for them. Like he'll pretend he's Eddie Murphy and he'll write Eddie Murphy's hour as if he was Eddie Murphy. And so I, I think this is a powerful tool.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah. So role storming, you hit it exactly right. That's brainstorming, but in character. In other words, you're taking on an actual real-world problem, but you're pretending that you were somebody else. Here's the reason this works so well, is that fear, not natural talent, but fear is the single biggest blocker of creative output. And it's that poisonous force that robs us of our best thinking. You think about it, you're in, a, you're, you're in a room with four other people and one person has an idea and the other four become like the self-appointed idea police and tell you all the reasons that it's not gonna work and you know, the boss isn't gonna like it and such. So again, by definition, because we're judged and responsible for these ideas, we share the safe ones, hold the big ones back. So roll storming totally fixes it. If you're in a room with five people, each person chooses their own character. You could be a literary figure. You could be a supermodel. You could be a four-year-old child or an alien or a villain. And, and, and you stay in character and take on the actual real-world challenge. And what happens is you, you'll be blown away if you do this. I know it sounds kind of goofy, um, but I've seen just crazy transformation. I think I covered this in the book, but I did this with a group of executives at Sony Japan. And I met this one guy. I'm not kidding. He was the stiffest human being I've ever met. Dark suit, white shirt his tie was like choking him. Anyway, he started, we got him roll storming as Yoda. And, and I've never seen That's personal great. transformation like this. This dude's jacket's off, his tie's undone. He's like leaping around the room. And the whiteboards were filled with ideas. And critically, I didn't teach him to be creative. He had that inside him all along, as do all of us. But what, the role he was in forbid it. And we put him in a new role and he was liberated. What were his ideas
0: like? Were they Yoda-like?
1: Oh yeah, he just, well, some were more Star Wars themed, and other ones were just way out there. But you know, before he, he felt so so inhibited and so judged that that his creativity was governed. In this case, you know, all bets were off. And then here's one: uh,
0: uh, the bad idea brainstorm. This <laughs> is really important, one, I think. Do You want to describe this one?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the notion is, you know, we get we get in a room, we got to brainstorm something, and obviously we're looking for good ideas, but that pressure can be overwhelming, and sometimes it, it, it we 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 just you know. We lock up. So this is a fun one. It's called the Bad Idea Brainstorm. It's a two-part session. Part number one, set a timer for 10 minutes. And instead of looking for good ideas, brainstorm the bad ones. Like what's the worst idea? What's an inappropriate or illegal or immoral idea? What's well, unethical? And Again, you're not going to actually do them, to be clear. But you draw them, you know, fill up the whiteboards with bad ideas.
0: Do, do, you have, do you have a category first? Like, what's the worst idea for books? Or what's the worst idea for businesses? Like, do you have a category? Or you just any, any idea goes?
1: Well, no. So you would, you'd be doing it on a particular challenge that you'd be ordinarily brainstorming on. So let's say, you know, you run a sales team for a healthcare provider. And you're like, okay, we got to drive, you know, 13% growth next quarter. So you take on an actual problem, but instead of thinking, okay, what are some good ideas to solve that? You're like, what's well, a terrible thing we could do? Oh, we could, go, we could go put a gun to the head of our buyers and force them to give us money. We could, we could poison a competitor so that, you know, or, you know, taint the supply chain, whatever. And so you come up with these horrible, evil, rotten, bad ideas. Then part two, you examine the bad ideas and say, okay, is there something in there? Is there a little nugget that I could do a legit flip to? That I could flip over to become a good idea. So for example, instead of um, you know, forcing your, your your customers at gunpoint to give you money. Blackmailing them. Yeah, maybe you could provide an incentive. So the notion is that it's it's pushing you way to the edge. And yes, you absolutely have to ratchet those ideas back a bit afterward. But it's better than succumbing to the gravitational force of incremental thinking. In a similar
0: vein, you have another exercise, the judo flip, which is, you know, think of all the conventional ways something is done and then think of the exact polar opposite of each one of those ideas and see how to make that work. So it's a very similar kind of exercise, except you're very focused on opposites. Like give me, give me an example of when that works. I'm so glad you dig these techniques. This is awesome, man. It's really, it's really fun. Uh, yeah, no, I always look for creativity techniques. This is a great list.
1: Yeah. So the notion here is, you know, let's, let's say you're trying to take on a challenge or, or seize an opportunity or whatever, and you start by taking an inventory. What, what have you always done in the past? What are the obvious approaches? What do most people do? And then you say, you draw a line down the page. and Next to every entry, you just ask the question, what's the polar opposite? What would it look like if you did the exact opposite of what everybody else has done? And that oppositional thinking really drives incredible success. You know, one funny example is this guy named Kevin Bull. He was uh, a contestant on American Ninja Warrior. And he, he like was weaker than the other guys. He wasn't as fit, whatever. Anyway, there was this challenge called Cannonball Alley. It was a test of your upper body strength where you had to grab onto these balls hanging from the rafters and sort of leap from one to the next to the next. It turns out like 16 people tried it before Kevin. All 16 of them failed. And now it's Kevin's turn. And he just knew he wouldn't be able to do it. Like the other people were stronger than him. So instead he judo flipped it. So he grabs onto the first one with his hands and then he flips over to the next one and uses his legs. And he starts Mm. swinging upside down and eventually he conquered the challenge because he gave it a judo flip. And so a judo flip can be a process, it can be an ingredient, it could be a a, a system. But the idea is looking what everybody else does and doing the exact opposite, or at least exploring what would it look like if you did the exact opposite.
0: So what what would this look like in jazz, for instance? So in jazz, there are, you could be creative, but there's, I don't want to say there's a, there's kind of a set of implicit roles. Like if you're playing around with this chord, it's acceptable to move into this chord. And you can improvise, using these chords, but there's a, there's a common set of chords and transitions that people know. So what would it look like if you went from one chord in, in jazz and uh, into something that was a completely, you know, maybe it was even like a country kind of set of chords or, or whatever, like what's, what's in a similar thing in music?
1: Well, it's so funny that you ask that because one of the greatest jazz songs of all time was written by giving a judo flip. And here's the story. So John Coltrane, maybe you've heard of him, one of the the, yeah. the most you know recognized jazz legends in the universe. So he writes a song called Giant Steps, and you're right. In jazz, even though it seems kind of you know free form, there are some mechanics that are pretty common. And largely, it's it's the chords that progress in a certain way. One chord generally leads to the next chord, which leads to the next chord. So in his case, he he took a look at it and, and he mapped out what is the furthest you could go from where you're supposed to go. In other words, the way music works without getting all geeky, it kind of goes in a circle. And so imagine a clock, you know, if if you're on uh, on twelve, six would be the furthest you could get away from it. If you went to 5, that's closer. If you went the other way to 7, that's also closer. There's something that's literally the furthest you can get from where you're supposed to be. Music is the same way. So John Coltrane writes the song called Giant Steps because there were giant steps of chord leaps. It was as far as you could possibly go from conventional thinking. And this was like this bold, crazy thing. No one could even believe that he did it. And it became his most famous work of art. And it's today one of the top 10 most recognized influential jazz songs in history. And it came from exactly that. He literally gave it a judo flip. He went as far opposite as one could possibly go.
0: Wow, I, I don't think I've ever... I don't know jazz. So I I I know the name John Coltrane, uh, but I've never heard of this song. So I'm I'm just gonna quickly look it up. That sounds so interesting.
1: Incidentally, when you call me next time, uh, it's it's on my ringtone. I've had it for years. That's my ringtone. Is John Coltrane's Giant Steps because it keeps me thinking like, okay, let's push to the opposite. Let's let's judo flip things forward.
0: Wow. So he made it in 1960, but it finally attained gold record status in 2018, meaning it sold a half a million copies and it's considered one of the uh, it's considered one of the most influential jazz albums of all time. It's so interesting.
1: But by the way, it's not only in music. When you, when you look at breakthroughs in many cases, you know, you know, a giant breakthrough in medical treatment or or in fashion or whatever else. A lot of times it's not because people gravitate toward the tried and true. It's because they have the courage to explore something rather different.
0: What's a medical example?
1: Well, here's an interesting one that ties back to what you were talking about earlier, borrowing from other parts of life. So it turns out that serious burns are one of the most horrible things we can experience. If you have like a third or fourth degree burn, I mean, this is not only horribly painful, uh, leave disfiguring scarring, it takes years if, to heal if at all. And the way it's generally treated is they overlay cadaver skin on an open wound, which is just bad all around. So researchers, instead of studying burn treatment, which has been about the same for for several decades, they started looking at graffiti artists and the way that people were spraying on paint very evenly on, on, on buildings when they were tagging a building. And they had this idea that they basically created something called the skin gun, which is essentially like a spray paint gun for skin. They would take stem, cell, uh, stem cells from a patient with some saline solution, and they're able to spray on this thin regenerative layer of skin, which was not ever done in, in the treatment of burns. But the results were stunning you know serious burns that would might maybe take 6 months or more to heal were cured in a matter of days. And so again this didn't come by following conventional wisdom or or you know 2% upgrade to the existing approach it came from more of a departure because they were in this case look look for uh, something outside of the field and applied it directly to medicine.
0: That's it it's like um Purell you know the hand sanitizer it's either Purell or some other brand like that but I think Purell started off the guy who invented the hand sanitizer it really started off to clean semiconductors, but then people started going over to this guy's cubicle and saying, "Hey, can I borrow that for my hands?" And that's how the sanitizer we use now all the time is, is it really was originally used to clean semiconductors.
1: I'm glad you said that because so think of that as a happy accident. Uh, by the way, much a lot of innovation happens in that regard. Uh, which is why I like this concept of big little breakthroughs rather than, you know, once a decade moonshots, because if you, if you are doing thousands of small experiments, like you talked about, you know, 10,000 experiments, you're much more likely to have one of these happy accidents than you are. If you, if you sort of hoard all your creativity and try it all at once. And so I like this notion again, high frequency, high velocity, small creative bets.
0: Tell me how you've been like, tell me about your businesses. So how are you creative? How, how are you personally creative in business?
1: Well, it's always a challenge. I'm always trying to, to continue to plus it up. Um, but an example, so I started a company in 99, which we talked about called ePrize, and And at the time, 99, everyone was focused on internet advertising. And I had sold another business. I had some capital. I wanted to start a new business. And I could have been like the 683rd internet advertising company. But then I said, wait a minute, when you look at the marketing mix, promotions is a large category, yet it's largely dormant online. So instead of being a follower, follow the herd, I did the opposite. I judo flipped it and started the world's first interactive promotion company. And so in that case, that the principle worked in action.
0: What do you mean? Like, what's a promotion?
1: Well, promotion would be, we did a lot of chance to win promotions, you know, and instantly win a, a pair of Nike shoes. Uh, we actually built the entire My Coke Rewards program. So if you look underneath the cap of a Coca-Cola product and there was a code, you could redeem that code for chance to win prizes or goodies and gear and stuff. And so we ma- managed the, the design, the technology, the security, the hosting of large-scale corporate promotions. But again, no one was really thinking about that online at the time. And we, we took this oppositional approach and, and it really worked. And by the way, yeah, I try to do that personally. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of quotes of largely other people's quotes, but there's one quote of my own that I said to my team on and on and on for years that someday a company will come along and put us out of business. So it might as well be us. It's the notion of like compelled reinvention, forced obsolescence. And I try to do that personally to answer your question. So I try to put the Josh of six months ago out of business with a new and better version. And I hope you're doing the same for you, James. And I think that's a productive approach that we're, we're I, constantly I like that. reinventing.
0: I like that as opposed to constantly, it's okay. You can say to yourself, I want to constantly try to get better. And this might not be actually very different, but it's a different mindset of doing that. So I want to put the James of six months ago out of business or write better than him or do something better than him. So it's one thing to kind of think about it in terms of like, okay, how can I incrementally improve this skill? It's another thing. Okay, well, I'm going to now learn Stay in the same domain, but learn it in the opposite way that I've learned it in the past. Um, so, for instance, uh, you know what would be an example in in music? Uh, well, you know, let's say you're a jazz guitarist. Now, but you but you really want to learn more of the nuances and subtleties of the guitar. Maybe you learn how to play country music or rock and roll or whatever. You 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 hit you hit the subject, the domain from a different angle could be an interesting way to to build up and put yourself out of obsolete because then you could combine the genres.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, in your case, if you're like, okay, imagine six months from now, some new amazing podcaster comes on the scene and they're really articulate and bright and they have even bigger hair than yours. Like, oh my God, how (laughs) could this even be? And it's the, the new James and it puts the old James out of business. You're like, okay, well, maybe that could be me instead of waiting for someone else to be that disruptive force. And so then you start deconstructing it. All right, what might I need to do? besides getting even bigger hair, but like, seriously, what, what yeah. might you do to become this even bigger sensation than you already are? So that's the notion is like, what would it take to put yourself out of business and be that force of change?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I like that because I am going through that process right now of thinking how to do a format change in the podcast that is interesting and fun to me. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, well, uh, you know, maybe talk about like, what are, what are some of the other techniques? In part two of the book, you have all these other techniques of, of basically being creative. I really like this chapter, Reach for the Weird. But, uh, you know, talk about break it to fix it.
1: Yeah, so you're exactly, we got kind of deep on on, on tactics. Uh, but the back half of the book, eight, eight separate chapters, each one represents a different mindset. And break it to fix it is also counterintuitive. We've often been told, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And man, that's terrible advice. Like, would you want your airline pilot doing that? You want your doctor doing that? I mean, wouldn't you rather proactively examine a system or an approach and, and deconstruct it and, and examine it and rebuild it in a better manner. So the notion behind this is, is challenging yourself to, well, that's kind of the, the principle we talked about when you reinvent yourself, that's kind of break it to fix it in action. And one thing that I've learned you know, now in 30 years in business is that you know, too often we, we sort of overestimate the risk of trying something new, but we tend to underestimate the risk of standing still. And this principle, break it to fix it, kind of shakes you into, okay, I better get after it, even though something appears still to be successful.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, so, uh, and again, my listeners know that I play a lot of chess. And one important rule in chess, maybe at a somewhat higher level, is if you're unsatisfied with your position, like let's say your opponent is putting a lot of pressure on you and you're feeling it, you, you do some move might make you even worse, but you completely change the structure of the position. Maybe you op- you give up a piece and you open up the position, so now your pieces are all over the board instead of being cramped or whatever. And this is the same sort of thing. You kind of break your position, make it even worse, but it changes the character so much, it gives you some chances.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, one of the other principles, you, you mentioned chess, that kind of applies. Um, there's a principle called use every drop of toothpaste. And it's a kind of cutesy way of saying to being resourceful. You know, the the objection I hear most often from from leaders around the world is, I would love to have a more innovative team, but, but I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough bandwidth. There's always some, you know, external factor that they're missing. I always playfully respond that if the amount of resources you had externally equaled your level of creativity, the federal government, would be the most creative organization on the planet, and startups would be the least. So we, we know the opposite is true. But anyway, back to right. chess, there's a principle that I'm sure you're aware of called tempo. And for those that are not chess players, the principle is basically that if you and I exchange a piece of equal value and I, I blow four moves, but you only spend two moves, you're ahead. And even though it doesn't objectively show that on the scorecard, you're ahead because you've beat me on two piece, two moves, you've, you've gained tempo. And so this notion of of sort of maximizing the resources at hand also applies to time. And so this notion of using every drop of toothpaste is around being sort of scrappy and resourceful, making the best use of whatever resources are at hand.
0: That that's really true about tempo. Are you are you a chess player? A, a moderate, well, uh, uh-huh. pretty weak chess player actually. But but that's that's really true. Sometimes even one tempo could make or break a game. I mean, in many cases that happens. So well, Josh, Josh Linkner, author of Big little breakthroughs. How small everyday innovations drive oversized results. This is really a great book. It's almost like the DNA of creativity. You break it down. Uh, I think people reading this will, will strongly benefit. Uh, I love the stories. I love the exercises. And what's what's your next project? What are you what are you working on? What are you creative with right now?
1: Well, I'm sort of on this mission to help everyday people become everyday innovators. I know it sounds like a postcard, but I kind of mean that from the soul. Like, I just think there's 7 billion people on this planet walking around with dormant creative capacity, including me, by the way. And and if we can help unleash that, I just think the world's a better place. I mean, think of the impacts that that could have on education outcomes and environmental outcomes and social justice and, and all the things that we care about. So I'm really focused on that. Uh, besides that, I'm actually launching a new venture capital fund, which sounds to be the opposite, but it actually it's called uh, Mudita Venture Partners. Mudita is a Sanskrit term, which means taking joy and delight in the, in the success of others. Like when you, you're super mm-hmm. successful podcast, I'm like, that's awesome. Good for you, man. I don't get jealous. I'm not resentful. I think that's great. And so we're sort of creating this fund with a soul where we think we can not only drive at better economic outcomes, but also make the world a better place. So it all sort of ties together in my, my sense of sort of sharing creativity and, and doing things a bit differently.
0: Well, I like that. I I like that. I like that name too, for uh, a VC fund. Well, Josh, thank you so much for, for sharing these techniques and sharing these stories and coming on the podcast, big little breakthroughs. I love the cover, by the way. It's a, it's, 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 I hate most covers. I think they're like really boring, but this is a great cover. Who, who designed the cover?
1: Well, originally, I think uh, Surrat or, or Van Gogh perhaps designed the cover because the, the design of it is pointillism, which is an art form where you just little small dots of primary colors and the dot itself isn't hard to do, but the semblance of dots comes together to form art. And to me, that was the perfect metaphor for what a big little breakthrough is. Any one of us could put a, a single dot on the page and, and they together add up in, in mass to something much uh, much more interesting. So that was the idea that we had is could we make a cover out of the art form of pointillism and that, that, that's really who gets the credit.
0: All right. I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, a little story about pointillism. Uh, Andy Warhol was, who was a, who was known as a a great illustrator. Like he could almost draw with photographic accuracy, but that wasn't, of course, being the best drawer, realistic drawer wouldn't, wouldn't make him famous. People were already doing that. So he was trying to figure out what, what piece of the art world would be unique, different, and move the art world forward. So he started thinking, okay, I'm going to do pointillist, versions of romance comic books, but then he realized his buddy Roy Lichtenstein was doing it. So he had to, so, so he, he, someone asked him, well, why don't you just paint, uh, Campbell's soup can? And he paid that woman who who was an interior designer. He paid that woman $50 to have her idea.
1: And then that became his, you know, the beginning of pop art. So it's so great because I love it. When, when you, we look at, you know, legendary people from, from Warhol or Elon Musk or whatever, we just think it feels so out of reach. Like good for them, but it's hard to see ourselves in it. But when you learn the backstory, you know, these incredible legendary people started small. That, that was a big little breakthrough right there. And, and that's just to me what, what the book is all about. what I kind of feel like my purpose is all about is to help kind of democratize this and make it accessible and within the grasp of every one of us. Yeah, and it also it also
0: gives permission for failure in the sense that if you do, if you if you're focused on trying to have a lot of little breakthroughs, a lot of them won't work, but that doesn't matter because the ones that add up to be the big breakthrough, that's what people will remember.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, you mean uh, you you write about experimentation. The optimal number of number of failed experiments is not zero. I mean, if you have zero right. fa- failed experiments, you're you're not trying very hard. So so the notion is that, you know, mistakes, failure, setbacks, that that really can become the fuel of discovery.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Well Well, again, Josh, uh, come back on when you start the venture fund and let's talk business and thank you so much for coming on about big little breakthroughs. And I, I, I'm going to try all of these techniques in the next few days. So I'm going to do the the judo flip one. I really want to do
1: flip away. My friend, thank you again for the privilege of being with you today.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Josh.